Hello listeners, welcome to Explore FI Canada, where we sit at the round table with Canadians and share their thoughts, ideas and personal journeys to financial independence. Thanks to Matt McKeever for sponsoring Explore FI Canada. Matt is a Canadian investor, CPA, entrepreneur and real estate expert who achieved fire at age 31. Do us a favor and check out his YouTube channel by searching Matt McKeever or using the link in our show notes. All righty, Explorify Canada, here we are. Chrissy, we're back again. It is Money Mechanic with you. How's things on the continent this week? They are great. It's uh, nice weather. I'm sorry, we're not supposed to talk about weather. but <laughs> I know, right? We're not supposed to talk about weather anymore. But it is always nice when it is a nice weather day when we're recording. Yes. Yeah, just had a walk with Mika, enjoying the sunshine, and I'm excited to have our conversation today with our guest. Me too. So we talk a lot in the FI community about accumulating assets, and it's great that when we share these discussions with our guests that are at the beginning of their journey, we get to learn all sorts about the right ETFs to use, index funds, all the rest of it, what accounts to use. But Chrissy, you and I are getting closer towards the uh, final destination, and so is our guest today. And the discussion we're going to have is really, really important because it's the the next puzzle of how you decumulate all those assets you worked decades to build up to to get yourself to financial independence. So the best way to have this discussion was for us to import a air quotes, air quotes expert. Uh, Mark Seed is with us. He has been writing for over a decade at myownadvisor.ca. He's got a new project on the go, which is cashflowsandportfolios.com. He has got an absolute wealth of information on his website. And he's definitely uh, been more of the personal finance side of things, which gives us an amazing amount of information, but he's getting close to his work optional FI point. So Welcome to the show, Mark. We're really happy to have you join us today. You've written lots about Drawdown. That's what we're going to talk about. Welcome to the show. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much, Mechanic, and and as well, uh, Chrissy. Um, it's great to be here, and uh, I must say I'm a fan of the uh, Explorify Canada podcast. I think you folks are doing great stuff, and uh, it's certainly a pleasure to be there. And whether we talk a little bit about the you know, asset accumulation, easy path, which is save money and live below your means. And then the puzzle that's decumulation or anything in between. Um, happy to share what I know and, and also what I don't know and what I'm still trying to figure out. Uh, I can appreciate it. It's, uh, it's not easy for people to navigate this stuff. And I'm trying to do my best through my blog and, and other things. Mm-hmm. So this is a really big topic that we're tackling today, the drawdown, the decumulation. And we're just going to see how the conversation goes. <laughs> we have a lot of notes and some listener questions to um, tackle, but we're going to do our best with our expert, our in-house expert here, Mark. <laughs> well, when you say a lot of notes, I got up this morning and I opened up the uh, our outline. We sent an outline and it morphed into a 17-page like manuscript for the novel that we're going to write about Drawdown. <laughs> this is impressive stuff here. And the thing is, is Mark, you've already written a lot about this on your blog because you're at that point where you've been thinking about this for the last three years, right? So we have to start saying that this is going to be a super personal plan. Every one of our listeners is going to have attack this slightly differently because there are just so many variables to take into account. So by no means what we're talking about is going to be a one-size-fits-all, but we want to kind of hit a broad strokes of what you're going to do with your RRSP. What are you going to do with your TFSA? 
What are you going to do if you have other passive income, whether it's dividends or interest from other sources? You know, just sort of broad strokes that kind of give us the uh, framework. And we've got a few other little strategies people may not have heard of that we can introduce. And then they'll be able to go on your blog and other places and learn a little bit more about that. So let's go wheels up here and talking some broad strokes. What's the first thing we're thinking about when we're going to pull that pin at FI? Where are we pulling the first money from? It's a cash flow problem. How do we solve the cash flow problem we need to cover our expenses? Thoughts, Mark? Yeah, I mean, it's a big question for people, right? And I think, you know, what my thinking, Mechanic and Chrissy, has been in the last, like I say, like you mentioned, two or three years, is really identifying those income sources, right? So, you know, most of us are, are fortunate to have a, a part-time job, full-time job where we're earning money, we're trying to provide for the family or provide for ourselves for that matter. And so that's kind of just one income source. Maybe a few of us had you know, side hobbies, side gigs, maybe that's a couple income sources. When we think about retirement planning, you can have six or seven different income sources. So you can have RSPs to your point, you may have TFSAs, tax-free savings account, um, which I know you're both uh, huge fans of. You may have taxable income, you could have CPP, Canada Pension Plan, you could have OAS, you may still be working part-time or full-time, you may have RIFs or LIRAs, so that's locked-in retirement accounts. Like it's, a, it's an alphabet soup of accounts that you need to be thinking about. So I, I think the first thing you need to think about instead of just kind of jumping in and really thinking, okay, well, maybe I should draw from my RSP or I got to learn everything I need to know about RIFs today. No, really just sit back and think about what are those potential income sources in retirement? And I know we'll talk about some of the my strategies and, and some things for people to think about uh, a little bit later on, but I would really encourage people to think about what are those income sources that you think you're going to draw on or what you'll what you potentially have in your in your toolbox if you will to draw on and i think once you start identifying those sources whatever they may be it's really going to start allowing you to think more holistically about this big portfolio that you have in terms of these income streams and then you can start designing your life around well when should i start drawing on these income streams and how much do i need from each to be ideally tax efficient um, but it is a big puzzle, and I can appreciate it is personal and it's different, but there are some basic concepts that I think people should uh, should consider. Mm-hmm. So we came up with a list of considerations, and maybe it's, it's kind of linked to the sources of income that you mentioned, but I, I think there, there's no easy way to tackle this topic, so we're just going to do our best. I think we're just going to go sort of one consideration at a time and sort of tease out the details and what you might want to think about with each of them. So should we get started with the first one? Yeah, no, I'm I'm nodding here on the video. Yes, let's do it. One <laughs> okay. thing that I didn't mention that Mark caught, which is absolutely critical to this planning stage, is we've been trying to minimize our taxes on accumulation all the years, but really the decumulation stage, a big part of that is smoothing out your tax impact on the way mm-hmm. down, down as well. So that's part of what all these strategies are about. Yeah, and the other hard thing about these strategies is that you're not just looking at one snapshot in time. You have to look at the entire lifetime. Yep. And what you do now can affect you 20 years, 30 years down the line. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of very complicated planning that you need to do to figure this out. Yeah, 100%. And, and you know, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but 
it's hard to forecast 20 years out, right? Like even mm-hmm. if you're in your asset accumulation years, you're like, wow, I don't know what my life's going to be next year. Nobody saw the pandemic coming except for maybe <laughs> uh, Bill Gates in yeah. 2016 when he was doing his TED Talk at UBC or whatever, right? But, you know, the reality is, is that you can only plan so much. And, and some of the concepts that I would like to impart to your your listeners, it's really about the process of planning and replanning that's important. You can't mm-hmm. uh, You can't predict what the next year or two years or five years is going to be very accurately. So don't beat yourself up over it. What I would encourage people to do is come up with some sort of game plan and then revisit that game plan every year and see, you know, am I spending too much? Am I spending too little? Can I draw down a little bit more? Can I draw down, should I draw down a little bit less? Mm-hmm. So it gets into the, the the concepts of, you know, having, you know, a, a huge amount of financial uh, flexibility. And I think that's really key for a lot of people to adopt to. And it's not easy, especially when you've been programmed for 20 or 30 years to save, save, save. And now you got to think about, mm-hmm. well, maybe I need to enjoy it a little bit more or smooth out the taxes or smooth out the ride on the way down to your point. Yeah. And for, the majority of our listeners, they're targeting early retirement. And whether that looks like in their 30s, their 40s, or their 50s, it's all technically early. And so you're going to have a lot more runway that you need to think about. And we had a, I had an interview with Peter Glant, who did the risks of fire. And he talked a lot about revisiting your retirement plan every year, just like you said, Mark. And that's a good way to do it. Retire again every year and adjust accordingly to meet your expenses and market conditions. And, you know, this is the problem is we can just start getting into everything because you're going to be worried about sequence of return risks and longevity risks and all the rest of it. So let's get into something that we can all relate to a little bit because we're similar type ages. We're all probably going to be starting a drawdown early 50s at least type things. So we're all probably people are going to have similar looking accounts at that point, fairly big RSPs, full TFSAs, probably a margin account. We'll leave pensions out of it for now because that's a, that's a tough one. Some are going to have, some aren't. Uh, so what's sort of one of the first steps we're thinking about for a 15-year to quote-unquote CPP or those kind of uh, means-tested or income-tested benefits that we may or may not get from the government, right? Like what's our first sort of stage here? Yeah, I mean, for me, I've done some, you know, noodling on uh, CPP just quickly and, and OAS benefits. But uh, to your point, Mechanic, I haven't really thought about that income stream too much. It's kind of a big bond, if you will, that's sitting in the future. So what I'm really trying to look at is, is first of all, what do I need? And it's a big question to answer, but what, you know, what does my spend in retirement? If I want to have a, you know, low six figure retirement spend, you know, A, I got to save a lot of money yep, and, and, and quite a <laughs> bit of money. And B, I really need to think about, okay, well, if, if I'm going to rely on RSPs and RIFs and CPP and OAS in my financial future, do I need it all at the same time? And if I don't, I'm going to probably have to draw down a lot of my RSP to meet that 100K spend, which is quite lofty. Don't get me wrong. It's a huge lofty goal uh, in retirement. Um, but some people, you know, want to spend that. They want to travel post-pandemic. They have big plans to maybe have a, you know, a secondary cottage or uh, other types of things, second properties. So for some people, that really is the, the the dream and the plan for retirement. They've put off consumption for decades and raising a family, and now they want to enjoy it. So, you know, if we're going to start 
drawing down your RSP a lot early, you better have the the assets to do that and then to replace that RSP because it's not going to last forever based on what you've got in your bank account. Then you need to think about, are you going to have enough from CPP and OAS and other income sources to cover that off? So I would encourage people to definitely spend some time thinking about their income needs first in retirement. And I've started to do that. And I think just to give people a number, it's probably in the range of, of maybe, you know, 50 to, to 70 K a year for us in retirement. So now I'm starting to work backwards and think, okay, well, what do I need from my RSP to draw down the next 10 or 15 years for that, knowing I'm not going to touch CPP until I'm 60, 65. And there's advantages of me even delaying till 70 as well for the reasons we can talk about. And so how much do I have in my bank account that allows me to draw that down. And if I don't have enough, then I have to think about some other income sources. Maybe it's the TFSAs I have to tap. Maybe it's the taxable account to your point. Maybe I, I, you know, I'll start working or continue to work part-time a little bit longer. But that's the thought exercise I go through uh, personally as I think about what are my needs, just like today, but what are my income needs today to satisfy uh, basic needs and, and maybe some wants or some discretionary things. And then I start looking at, okay, well, what accounts can I tap that would give me some of that income stream. And I'm purposely thinking about keeping some of those government benefits, you know, later on in life, just because I see, uh, for all the reasons we'll probably talk about, but there's some built-in inflation in there. And I think that's a great thing for someone in their 60s and 70s, because they don't need to worry about their personal portfolio as much. These things have inflation built in, which I think is huge. Yeah, and, and there's something that uh, I think in these discussions that is often forgotten is that people also have to take into account the taxes owing on the income that they're drawing. It's not just your spending. You also have to remember which tax bracket you'll fall into and how much you owe in taxes. And if you're a couple, you're lucky that you can get uh, more income at a lower tax rate because you can split the income between you. So keep that in mind when you're planning your numbers that you do need to add that. And sometimes it can be quite a significant chunk, that tax bill. Absolutely. I mean, uh, income splitting is a huge advantage, especially when you're in your 60s and, you know, you've got uh, CPP and other types of uh, income you can split, you know, RIF income and the like. Um, but if you're an early retiree and you're, you know, you're thinking about drawing down things in your 50s, it's, it's not quite as easy. And so you do need to think about the tax considerations. You know, certainly if you withdraw from your RSP, there's some withholding taxes because basically the government wants their money back. They gave you a loan, right? It's always been kind of a tax deferred loan. So the government wants their money back. And so you need to think about, uh, like we talked about earlier, potentially smoothing out uh, withdrawals from your RSP. Maybe you're not taking huge lump sums, but maybe you're taking 10 grand, 15 grand a year, and you're slowly drawing that down because of other income sources that you have. In our case, if we're getting to that 50 to 70K range, I got to be thinking about, well, what do I do with my taxable account? And how does that factor into my tax equation? Yeah. And I'd also like to point out that there's a huge advantage for early retirees in that you have this window of time when you can control your income a little better than when you're older. And so it gives you an opportunity to draw down some of your assets while you're in a lower tax bracket. And I encourage people to really look at that and use it to their advantage because I'm helping my in-laws and my dad with their drawdowns now. They're in their 70s and there's no wiggle room once you're at that age. You're forced to take this income and it really can bump you up into the higher tax brackets without you even need. You don't need that income a lot of time, but you have to take it because it's mandatory. It's mandatory. You're forced. It's again, it's a it's a government uh, provision where, you know, the, the government does want part of their money back and they're forcing you to to, to take mm -hmm. the money, right? And so, you know, traditional retirement planning, you know, when I was 
growing up, still growing up, if you will, and, and looking at things. I, you know, I heard a lot of folks keeping everything intact to their 60s and 70s. I think that the conventional thinking has totally changed on its head with the TFSA and just more knowledge about how more efficient and flexible you can be with multiple income streams or accounts. And so you can take an opportunity to smooth out taxes in terms of getting hit instead of getting hit by five or five and uh, change percent when you're in the end of the year, you turn age 71, you're forced to take that money. You're going to get taxed on it. Obviously, there's things you can do with it to move it into a TFSA, maybe put it into tax efficient investments in terms of your taxable account. But yeah, you're right, Chrissy, you're forced to take the money and you got to do something with it. And um, I think Canadians would be better served in thinking about how to potentially draw down their RSP sooner than end of the year age 71 to give them that financial flexibility. And also, like we alluded to earlier, potentially delay some government benefits that when they're in their 70s or even beyond, maybe they don't want to manage their portfolio. So then it becomes an estate planning issue as well in terms of how much hands-on or financial management do you really need in your 70s and 80s. And and that can be something that um, you know Canadians can think about as well. Yeah, well, just some back-of-the-napkin math. If a couple enters financial independence with 500k in their RRSP, which is a lot of money and that's impressive, but it's probably not unreasonable if they've been good savers and they've been invested for 20 or 25 years. Well, even by if we just use the 4% withdrawal rate, they need to pull 20 grand off that for 25 years, right? So you it's a serious consideration to start hacking into that RSP sooner than later because all things being equal and the market continued to go up at a pace over time and all the rest of it. But that's a large chunk of money that you want to try and be in control of tax as we've just talked about. So this, I think that we kind of all agree here. That's one of the first considerations is extracting that the most efficiently as possible. Yeah, I, I've actually done my own projections on this uh, to your point. And I think I, I, I played around with something like for us, 55-year-old couple, future couple, of course. But yeah, if we are able to save that much money, which is quite a bit, but if we're able to be diligent and save that much in your RSP, you can actually withdraw about 30000 per year at 6% withdrawal rate. 6%, yep. not 4%, 6%. Yep. So forget 4% rules. You're yep. actually blowing that out of the water. Yep. And even if you earn even, but if, if you assume a conservative rate of return of you know a predominant stock and bond portfolio, 5%, you actually don't run out of money until I think your late seventies. Now that seems very concerning to a lot of people. Gosh, you're, you're going to run out of money in your late seventies, but that's that's a long time. Assuming conservatively five percent return, drawing six percent, it's going to last you twenty twenty five years. Yeah, exactly. And then you have other income sources potentially drawn. You may you may want to you know jettison the primary residence or something like that and rent. You know the world's your oyster in terms of things. So really thinking about these accounts and and how you want to draw down the income that you've worked so hard to build, but not tying yourself to the government legislation and rules, I think is a really smart way of thinking about uh, personal finance planning for for retirement. Yeah, I don't want to get sidetracked too much here, but I know, Mark, that you've uh, written at least one article that I read, maybe more, about you know 
can you save too much in your RRSP? And the short answer is yes, because depending on how you structure and want to plan this, there may be a point where you are, it's more advantageous for you in the future from a tax point of view to start using your non-registered account. So I know that's a whole nother discussion. Some people will be like, yeah, the, the, the RRSP is horrible. I would just go in straight into non-registered and all the rest. So let's not just go there, but it is an interesting point to note. And I've done a little bit of the math on that myself too. And I've kind of looked at it and I said, well, I'm only going to have so many years to pull down an RSP, considering what age I'm at and where my projected time is to start pulling it down. And if I want to make it the most tax efficient, I only want to be pulling 20K as a couple out of it. So I only want that 20K to last for 15, maybe 20 years. So those are kind of like, like you said at the beginning, Chris, that forward-looking math that's really hard to do. So I think we've... uh exhausted the RSP <laughs> topic for now. Not even I mean, close. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's as deep as we want to go. Let's just say yeah, that because yeah. we could go a lot deeper. <laughs> Consideration number one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So try to get, try to figure out how you can draw that down when you're in a low tax margin um, year or in the years when you can do that. The next thing we can consider, I think, is your non-registered accounts, because our big goal, I think most of us would like to try to preserve our TFSAs for last because there are a lot of benefits to doing that. So the next type of account that we might go to is the non-registered account because uh, those are more lightly taxed than RSPs because you're um, taxed just on the capital gains rather than on the whole amount. So can you talk a little bit about strategies with uh, withdrawing from non-registered? Yeah, I mean... um... You've brought up some great points, Chrissy, in terms of depending on how you invest in your taxable account, you could be just focused on growth only. And and capital gains is a very efficient way of of investing in terms of just deferring, uh, realizing those 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 gains until the year you want to sell those assets. It also comes down to maybe a bit of a timing issue, of course, because you don't know if you're in selling right now at market all time highs as of you know the time of this recording. Or maybe later this year, things are going to go up as well, right? So there is a bit of, you know, personal forecasting, if you will, to say, well, am I, am I selling my taxable assets at the best time? But of course, nobody knows that. We only know that in hindsight. So certainly investing in, in capital gains oriented, growth oriented products in a taxable account is great. My personal approach, if we want to talk about that, is is certainly I have a affinity to Canadian dividend paying stocks and they tend to be quite tax efficient as well. Certainly the lower income you make, they're a very efficient form of tax. I think when you add in employment income, Canadian uh, dividend paying stocks and the dividends you receive are, are taxed less favorably than capital gains. And there's lots of great articles and sites about that information. I've probably written one or two myself. But I, I would say generally speaking, yeah, you want to be able to, to smooth out the taxes like we said in the RSP. And you may want to start topping up some of your income streams via the taxable account. So it's absolutely a great strategy to do. Maybe making periodic sales of growth-oriented stuff or winding down those beloved dividend-paying stocks that a lot of people have in their Canadian taxable account, knowing that that's probably a great thing to wean yourself off because even if you keep your RSP and RIF intact for many years to come, that money is compounding away and there's massive power. I've run a few projections actually for, for a few folks recently where it's amazing to see how much power there is in the TFSA and RSP to have that money compound and actually drawing down your taxable account 
you know, I would say fairly quickly, but just making sure you you understand how to get rid of that sooner than later, because why pay taxes on things when you don't have to, per se? So, um, but absolutely, a taxable account is a great way to have that other income stream in retirement, whether it's from dividends, whether it's from growth um, or other vehicles. And I would like to point out a sort of unique tactic that people might not have considered is also when you're in your low tax or uh, low income years, it may be a good time to crystallize some of the capital gains in your non-registered accounts because um, you bring up the adjusted cost base so that later on when you do need to sell them in your higher um, income years, you'll be taxed a lot less lightly at that time. Yeah, absolutely a great strategy. And uh, I don't know if I've written about it in detail yet on my site. I'm sure I've touched on it a little bit, but at some point I will I will capture that. And there's there's lots of ways um, to really think about uh, tax mitigation strategies with the taxable account. Um, that's an excellent one to call out. Yeah, I don't know if it goes by some other names, but it's basically like harvesting your capital gains mm-hmm. when you can control the taxes as much as possible. So for the listener here is if you've had a ETF or a stock sitting in there that has grown and you've now got a $10,000 gain on it, well, if you can sell that in a very low income tax year, you're going to pay taxes on half of that gain, which is the 5000 and you're going to pay taxes at that year's marginal rate. So if you've just started your quote-unquote early retirement and you have a zero income year, that's going to look really tax efficient. Now, you don't have to take that money out. You could then, after your 30 days, you could then rebuy that same Actually, ETF you don't again. have to wait. You don't have to wait 30 days when it's capital gains harvesting. Capital losses uh, you do? Losses you have to. That becomes, um, it's not a loss, wash sale. In the States, it's called a wash sale. Yeah, no, um, it's... Um, is, uh, is it? <laughs> I thought for some reason it was on gains as well, but no. I no, no, okay. only on losses. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to to be stuck thinking about what the name of that is. I'll come up with it before the end of the show. But anyway, not to get too sidetracked. But yeah, super interesting strategy because most of us in accumulation, we never want to take gains. We want to see that stuff growing and compounding. And if you get a a sizable taxable account in there with huge, big, uh, you know, book cost versus your market value, it's like, it's nice to be able to exit some of those. And and like I said, you can just re-enter that, that tray or that position but you're going to control that taxes. So super important. Good point there. I know what it's called. Superficial loss. Superficial <laughs> loss rule. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I think better with a beer on my other show. <laughs> okay. Should we move on to the next point that we want to cover? For sure. Um, that's TFSAs, the wonderful TFSAs. <laughs> Yay. So generally, like I mentioned, we want to try to save those for last. So can you Talk about that, Mark, about why that might be a good strategy to consider. Yeah. I, and again, speaking from the personal and personal finance, I know when I've ran my own uh, projections, our own projections, it seems to make sense that from an income uh, stream, so to meet our needs, but at the same time to potentially defer um, the benefits from CPP and OAS, because the TFSA assets, when you withdraw those assets, they're not income tested. There's no means test in terms of actually it counting as income. It will be great because if we keep those to the end, we can draw down the RSPs in our 50s and 60s. We can potentially draw down the taxable dividend income that we have. And if we keep those TFSA assets till the end, there's potentially that time that we've got invested already in the last 10 or 11 years. It'll compound and continue to grow. And then we can start drawing that out maybe in our in our more senior years without really any income 
reporting requirements, right? It's it's tax-free income. So we can take the money out. It doesn't affect the uh, income that we have to report for come tax filing time. Obviously, we'll have the CPP and the OAS at the time. But if those are our only income streams, our tax rate would be quite low in our 70s and 80s, which is great. But at the same time, throughout our 50s, 60s, and 70s, we've actually smoothed out taxes by using that approach. So that's something that we're uh, thinking about in terms of keeping the TFSAs until the end. Obviously, it doesn't work for everybody. There's other types of approaches where you can actually draw out your TFSAs quite early in retirement and take advantage of other government programs and, and the like. So that doesn't necessarily work for everybody, but it really depends on your personal income needs. And then again, those income sources that you can draw on. And I think what's really important which we haven't talked about too much, but in terms of beneficiaries and in state planning and all these other things, one of the concepts that I keep thinking about is certainly if you have a success holder, and then maybe not, maybe a lot of your listeners aren't, aren't aware of this, but if you do have the opportunity to, to sign your paperwork or talk to your bank or your financial institution about the TFSAs you have, make sure you look at the fine print and think about a success holder. Essentially, what a TFSA success holder will allow you to do is um, you become the holder um, in the unfortunate incident that your common law uh, partner or your spouse passes away, and you own that those TFSA assets right away. There's no probate. There's no, there's no really other hoops to jump through. And so at a time where it could be very sensitive, very emotional, very stressful uh, by losing your partner or spouse, especially uh, as you get older uh, or otherwise, having the TFSA um, for each of your partners or common law, uh, you know, spouses and what have you as a success holder is really a way where all the assets remain sheltered. And so from an estate planning perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Whereas RIFs and RSPs and definitely taxable accounts, they have much more complex uh, beneficiary considerations. So like I said, it's not maybe for everybody, but I would look at the fine print in terms of the, the legalese that you've signed and really follow up on the TFSA success holder designations and, and making yeah. sure you you read through that. I don't know if that's something that you both have thought about, but I think it's, it's a big thing to think about. Yeah, I tell everyone I know, make sure you have that designation on your TFSA to have that um, successor instead of beneficiary for your spouse, because basically they get your TFSA. Like it's not just the assets, they get that room and the whole account and everything and it becomes theirs. So it's almost like doubling your TFSA at that time. It's massive. And you, yeah, yeah, and you get to keep it for the rest of your life. You can't grow it. Like there's not going to grow contribution room in that account other than the growth of the investments, but you don't get the extra 6,000 per year in that, that portion, but you get that whole amount staying tax-free until you die. So it's, it's pretty powerful. Well, you it get is. the whole amount, but you actually get all the holdings. It basically mm -hmm. just yeah. all goes to you. If it's mm -hmm. full of ETFs or stocks, you get all of those as they are in kind. It's yours. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, that's very powerful. I think pretty sure we've mentioned that a few times on the show before, but it's a great thing to keep bringing up. And it's one of those things that we all need that little reminder <laughs> frequently to make sure we go and take care of that, especially with some of us that have multiple brokerage accounts. And that might be me. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. checking that paperwork <laughs> and making sure everything's in uh, the way where you want it to be. Krista, should we take a quick break for the show sponsor and we'll come back and I want to ask Mark a little about his bucket strategy when we come back. Have you ever listened to a podcast with great content, but terrible audio? I know I have, and I've bailed on shows because it's too painful to listen. If you're a podcaster, you need to nail your audio. But if you're like me and have no idea how to do that, I know someone who can help. Max from Fix Audio is Explorify Canada's official editor and mixer. 
but I also like to call him my personal podcasting instructor. With Max's help, I've effortlessly and affordably improved my audio and podcasting. Now, just so you know, Fix Audio isn't your run-of-the-mill podcast production house. Instead, Max provides white glove treatment with hands-on personalized service. If you're ready to take your podcast to the next level, reach out to Max at Fix Audio. That's F-I-X-A-U-D dot I-O. Okay, we're back and we have Mark Seed from myownadvisor.ca and now, more recently, cashflowsandportfolios.com. Mark's joining us talking about drawdown strategies today and we are at the point of the show where I would like to dig into the quote-unquote bucket strategy that our listeners may or may not have heard about before. And Mark's got an interesting variation on this strategy and the way I understand it, and please jump in, Chrissy or Mark, if I've got this wrong, but my understanding from the traditional personal finance retirement bucket strategy is you have three buckets. The first bucket is a cash bucket. It's for immediate spending and it might hold a year, perhaps even two years of your cash spending. And your second bucket, that's going to hold sort of three to five years of safer assets. And I'm kind of doing quote safer assets. It might be a GIC ladder. It, you know, it's something that is protected from market risk that you can use as your sort of backup if you're sort of dwindling on your cash side, then you can use that middle bucket and your third bucket because you're still a long-term investor, even if you're drawing down your portfolio. You want to have some aggressive assets there. You might still have a 70-30 equity bond mix. You might have 90-10. Who knows what you have in there, but that's going to be your market assets that need to generate some returns to maintain your overall drawdown strategy. So this is my basic understanding of it. And it's interesting because I've read some things that say, well, yes, it's kind of designed to prevent or to help you if there's sequence of return risks. But at the same time, as if you're, the the theory is that bucket three fills up bucket two and bucket two fills up bucket one. But what happens if you are in a prolonged downturn, then bucket three is like, you don't want to pull anything out of bucket three because that's the worst possible time to take out of bucket three. You should be putting stuff from bucket two into bucket three, you know? So (laughs) it gets a little nuanced. It gets a little complicated, but the general outline is as I described. But Mark, on your on your blog there, you've got a slightly different bucket strategy. So correct me if I've missed anything and then give us kind of an outline of how you think of yours. Yeah. Great uh introduction, money mechanic. I I I'm aligned with your thinking on the kind of I'm using air quotes, the traditional bucket strategy, right? So cash savings sits there, bucket one. You renew GIC ladders in bucket two or fixed income or bonds or whatever, and then that fills bucket one. And then from bucket three to bucket two to get to the GIC stage, you're basically in equities, right? So think of cash, income, and then basically equities. My approach is very different, not very different, but but slightly different. So I have a couple articles on my site, a site about, you know, how much cash should you keep in retirement? And I think I've got one entitled our bucket approach in to earning income and retirement in particular. And folks can check those out. I've taken a modified version because the way I see bonds, there's a couple of reasons why you own bonds. Bonds are usually fixed income in general. Bonds are for short-term expenses where you, you don't want the market to go down. You don't want the market risk. You have no idea what's going to happen. So bonds are helpful for that. 
Bonds are also helpful for basically saving yourself from yourself, if you will. (laughs) So when you need to have money that's available to put in the stock market and or you want to rebalance your portfolio or the stock market is absolutely tanking like it did in March 2020, and we didn't know when the bottom was going to be, the bonds are stabilizers for your portfolio. I've taken a different approach in my bucket. So my bucket is basically a year's of cash, ideally, and as I start semi retirement. So that's bucket one for me. Bucket two for me is um, living off some dividends, if you will, in terms of my taxable account and or drawing the distributions from my stocks or dividends from my RSP, namely. And then I would say bucket three for me is really my growth-oriented stuff for that classical, you know, passive uh, ETF approach. So my approach is a little bit different. I'm going to keep a year's worth of cash in bucket one. That's going to be basically an emergency fund. I'm going to use the income derived from my RSP that we talked about earlier uh, through distributions or dividends from the RSP and taxable, uh, leaving TFSAs probably till the end. And then bucket three is, you know, low-cost ETFs that are going to spin off distributions, but they're also going to get some growth. And so should I have a bad market or a bad decade of markets like happened in the 2000s where things were not booming at all and we kind of had a, you know, air quotes, lost decade, My ability to keep the cash is going to be good to ride out that year or so. Then the income coming from my RSPs and the dividends uh, from my taxable account will be allowing me in a tax-efficient way to have that for living income. And if I really need to tap bucket number three and sell some assets, I can. But I'm thinking I'm buying myself a couple years worth of bad markets with the ability to live off dividends or distributions per se, and also having that cash sitting there as an emergency fund. So whether that's things for the condo, whether that's, you know, ratcheting down our spending because it's a it's a horrible year in terms of uh, uh, the, you know, the economy and the environment or whatever. I, th- I feel my approach is a little bit more robust. It's obviously a little bit more risky because I'm taking more risk on with equities. But I think that approach works for me and, and it works for um, what I envision about where I'm going to get my income from, a mix of dividends and and. ETFs that pay distributions and not necessarily hoping for capital gains. So it is much more conservative. Probably means I, I, I need to save a little bit more, but I'm much more comfortable with that cash wedge and then uh, a bias to ex- equities and really not a lot of bonds or fixed income at all. Thoughts on that? Chrissy, does that sound a little bit about the yield shield? It does. And it, for me, it brings up the question of um, some people don't invest for dividends and I'm I'm one of those types. And that makes that bucket too a little bit trickier to keep filled up. And also like you, I don't really like bonds. So <laughs> so I guess that leaves GICs. GICs are really the, the best option for that bucket too. No, I disagree with that because just because you don't have dividend-specific investments, it doesn't mean you can't create your own dividends because Mm. we we don't even want to get into the total return or dividend plus return argument because the return is the return. And just because you're holding broadly diversified portfolio, you can make your own dividends to provide for bucket two. Yes. And that's something that Ed Rempel uh, talks about in his blog. He calls them self-made dividends. It's when you sell a little bit of your uh, investments and you just pay the, the capital gains on it. So it's it's a more controlled way to have a dividend. Mark and I just don't like that. We like the dividends. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm laughing and I'm smiling because I like getting paid. Yeah. I, I mean, 
And I know you can make your own dividends and I know you can sell your stocks strategically like we talked about in your taxable account or your RSP or TFSA, wherever you want to hold them, whether they're Canadian or US or international. I There's a psychological benefit that, and I write about this all the time on my site for yep. years. <laughs> yep. There's a psychological benefit for me that I know from some of the companies, historically at least, I'm going to get paid. Now, whether or not I always get paid by the same companies in the future or whether or not they raise their dividends, um, that's a different story because we know even in the last year, some companies have been very challenged to sustain their dividends and yeah. rightly so. But I I have that bias and I think it really helps me stay invested. And in a lot of cases, it's really allowed me to stay more in equities and take advantage of more gains over the last 10 years in a bull run. So Absolutely. There's the total return. It's always important. I get that. Dividends are a slice of that total return. But I, I, I feel there's a, whether you call it a yield shield or or other types of uh, tactics, I, I personally like getting paid and I hope I always get paid from the companies that I own. Or even if I don't, there's nothing wrong with with buying a, you know, potentially a dividend ETF as long as it's low cost, it's diversified, and you can still get paid paid through the ETF distributions. And those may fluctuate too, but you can still get paid that way. So I think there's lots of products out there for investors and or securities for investors to consider, but that does come with a little bit more risk and and hence the cash wedge for me as, as a year's worth of saving. Yeah. I think to kind of extract a little bit from your bucket strategy here, because these are concepts that are, for me, definitely are best viewed on a piece of paper or on the screen. So I can kind of um, you know, get my head around it. I'm a visual learner and we'll definitely have these in the show notes for listeners, but is we've, we've discussed how to execute the usage of your different accounts. And this bucket strategy isn't changing that at all. It's just using those parts that come together to form those buckets of, of the way you've designed it. So just wanted to make that apparent that this, this isn't different from what we've already talked about. It's using what we talked about at the beginning and then creating a little bit more of a structure that you can sort of work within. 100%. So maybe while we're on this topic of the bucket strategy, we can talk a bit about your cash wedge. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that as part of your strategy with this. So uh, can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, figuring out how much cash you should keep in, in retirement, I think is a really, it's a difficult question for a lot of people to answer because we know what's interest rate savings, like high interest savings rate, it's a bit of a farce, right? Like, is it 1.2% now? Is that the highest in Canada? Right? Yeah. I think 1.25. Uh, yeah. Okay, 1.2 right, right now, maybe. Is it AEQ? Yeah, and there's yeah. Lucan and a few other companies, mm -hmm. right, that are doing, you know. Yeah, they're all around the same. They're usually. all around the same ballpark. Mm -hmm. So it's tough. Do you need 5,000 in retirement? Do you need 5,000 today? Do you need 50,000 in retirement? You know, do some people need 100,000 or more? Like, it, it's really a risk tolerance question. And I know for us, we feel quite comfortable with having you know, that money tucked aside, if you will, eventually, we don't have that now by any stretch, but we'll be working towards that in the coming year, such that that wedge is a bit of a buffer for us for the unforeseen. So while we plan, as Money Mechanic says, and as you alluded to as well, Chrissy, all the approaches in terms of, well, you're going to draw down your RSP and you're probably going to spend some dividends and sell some stuff along the way. And then you're, it sounds like you're going to spend your dividends and draw down your taxable along the way. And then you're going to keep the TFSAs for the future when OAS and CPP kick in. That sounds like a reasonable risk management approach to getting rid of the personal risk, but transferring that risk to the government and then smoothing out taxes in between. I just feel that having that cash wedge, that little buffer there should 
dividends get cut or distributions get cut, or if we have a reserve stun, uh, fund study in the condo or the car breaks down, whatever it may be, I just I feel I can sleep better at night having a little bit of money set aside in the, I'll say, a moderate interest savings account if they want to change the name. Um, so <laughs> it's a Misa now. <laughs> it's a Misa, exactly. And I think I think everybody. I think we should just call difference. it what it is. We should just call it a Lisa. That's why I better not say that. There'll be Lisas out there going. Don't call it a low interest savings yeah, account. Yeah, don't call it like that. Yeah, don't use my don't use my name in don't vain. <laughs> I think it's an exercise that everyone has to go to through in terms of assessing their personal risk, and it will be different for everybody. But I know for us, we feel much better about having a eventually a year's worth. And you know what? If we don't use it, that's fine. Or if the stock market tanks in a one year and we have some money and we want to invest, more power to us. But I'd, I'd rather sleep mm-hmm. at night kind of factor that's really hard to quantify when it comes to personal finance. And you could argue, is it better to pay off your mortgage versus investing? And yet, But, you know, some of these decisions just aren't about math. They're about emotions and, and how you best manage your 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 personal affairs and, and what's best for you and your family. So I totally get that. Definitely. I have a question for Chrissy. Uh-oh. It's going to be hard on me. <laughs> no, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on this because you are have always said that you've been equity heavier and aggressive investor. You've got some leveraged assets as well. Uh Going forward with your drawdown plan, do you, what do you think you might use as a cash wedge? I I don't want a cash wedge. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think you did. That's why I wanted to ask. <laughs> no, I I like to be invested. I I like my money working for me at all times, and so I acknowledge that there is that psychological need. And for me, I find comfort in the math, like I the general math that says that in general equities will do better than than cash. And so I take comfort in that and I build in, you know, safeguards. I I will have to reassess my emergency plan because I say instead of having an emergency fund, you have an emergency plan. So you think of all the issues that could come up that could create a financial emergency for you. And so I think I'd have to revisit that when we reach FI and start withdrawing our money. I need to look at what could happen and what I could need to cover. And I have to figure out maybe I will have to have somewhat of a cash wedge at that point because we won't have work income coming in from my husband's job. And so I think things will change at that point. Right. <laughs> Stay tuned, listeners. Stay <laughs> yes. tuned. The plan yeah. evolves. Exactly. I th- yeah. I think one comment I want to add in here too, because I, I I feel the same way. I kind of like, I really see the value of having that cash wedge psychologically, but then I can also, you know, justify and going, well, it's just, it's not optimized. It's just <laughs> sitting there. It's, you know, it's, so, but I also think that as you're getting further down the road, Asset protection is really important, and you don't necessarily need to take on a ton of risk. Take the risk that you need, but if you don't need to take on more risk to meet your goals or your income for for your projected plan, then why do it, right? It's okay that you've got a year's worth of cash in there because Mm -hmm. you don't need to optimize that. You don't need to take market risk with it. So that, I think, is an important consideration here too. Yeah. Yeah, I think for someone like me, it's important to have that enough number, right? Because mm-hmm. I I am someone who strives for the best and the top. <laughs> I could keep going, right? I could keep leveraging my way to the top, but, <laughs> but what for, right? What is the goal? You have to yeah. kind of realize when enough is enough and you need to stop and put the brakes on at some point. It's like the one year, one more year syndrome, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, 
you know, do you need it? And, you know, it's different for everybody. So, uh, you know, best answer in personal finance is always it depends, (laughs) right? But it depends what your comfort level is. I just, people just, you know, do need to think about what is there enough, right? And, And for people that are, uh, I, you know, hopefully healthy and they've, they've got a uh, good family and good friends around them and they've got a bit of money in the bank. That's, 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 a, that's enough in my book. So, um, yeah, for you sure. to consider your options after that. All right. Where are we going to next, Chrissy? Okay. So we've talked about ha- having enough money, but there is one strategy that I would like to cover because it's k- kind of unique and it's not very well known. And it's something that could give you a little bit of a bump in income if you are strategic and you really plan for it. And it's something that especially early retirees can take advantage of because they have the time to uh, roll up to this date and really uh, optimize things so that they can take advantage of the strategy. So what I want to talk about is something that Ed Rempel came up with, or or he named it. I I don't know if other people have uh, talked about the strategy previously, but he calls it his eight-year GIS strategy. So GIS is the Guaranteed Income Supplement, and it's tied to the OAS. It's meant for lower-income seniors. So Mark, you you know about the strategy, and you've mentioned that um, it's something that you've written about as well. So tell us more about the strategy and why it might be worth considering. Yeah. So there's actually, Chrissy, a case study on my site that your listeners can check out. I think it was like, um, I did this with a a fee-only planner that's done a few case studies on my site. The title of the post is called, uh, They Want to Spend 50000 Per Year in Retirement, and Did They Say Enough? And the the premise of that post is walking through a case study with, you know, they've they've saved quite a bit of money, uh, this couple. They don't have quite a million but they've said quite a bit. There's no doubt. But you know, certainly, if they're early retirees, mid fifties, they they potentially need lot money to last to a hundred. And so, instead of drawing down all of their RSPs and all of their TFSAs, and they had no government pension, that's something else to highlight. So you know, their income streams were a little bit more limited, maybe. So how do they make their money last? So one of the concepts that the fee-only planner and I talked about was this GIS strategy, and this is where really. Is it a loophole or is it, is it, you know, more of a, of a twist on, on how to get the GIS, which is really designed for guaranteed income supplements. So low income seniors, right? And so the idea here would be to, uh, apply and, and take advantage of the GIS supplement, that income stream. You would be withdrawing from your taxable, uh, tax-free savings account, sorry, where it's not means tested and it's not any, uh, sort of, uh, income that would be accounted against those. And then what you would allow yourself to do is because you're drawing down your, your TFSA and doing this for multiple years on end, you could actually get about a hundred thousand. I think in the case study, when we factored in, you know, compounding and, and other factors, I think it was around one hundred twenty or one hundred thirty thousand dollars in terms of income from the GIS program for a couple that had quite a bit of money in the bank because they were leveraging their TFSA withdrawals. It wasn't counting for income. They were getting the government uh, supplement. They were allowing themselves to defer CPP which I know you've talked about quite a bit on the podcast uh, later on in life as, as OAS. And so, you know, in this case, they could spend quite a bit close, if not higher than their, per, you know, desired 50000 per year by just leveraging the, the government benefits in a different way. So lots more details in the post. And I know you talked to uh, Ed Rempel about it as well and have some content on your site about that. But 
uh, really interesting strategy in terms of of uh, you know optimizing the the way the accounts and the benefits are structured today, at least. Yeah, and again, this is one of those strategies. Uh, we talked about this in the episode with Rajan about his how you can take advantage of the Canada Child Benefit uh, because fire people when they retire early tend to be in a low tax bracket. And so they can take advantage of these benefits that are not necessarily meant for wealthy people, like people in the fire community. So some people I acknowledge will say this is slightly unethical, maybe, but it's the way it's set up and you're not doing anything wrong by taking advantage of it. And it's there. That's just the way it is. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I... I admit I struggle with it a little bit just because I, I think of GIS as that guaranteed income for people that really need it. And these are the programs that are designed for it. Now, whether you can say it's optimally, optimally designed the program amongst other maybe government programs, that's, that's a, that's a whole podcast or set of podcasts for another day. You could argue OAS do, do seniors making over a hundred thousand a year need any sort of old age security income, even though it's clawed back again. Um, Lots of conversations to have for another day, but I, I struggle with it a little bit. But it is a legitimate strategy between the ages of, you know, late 50s, early 60s in terms of drawing down your TFSAs and reducing that taxable income uh, to the extent possible where it's next to nil in some cases. So one thing I think about from hearing this strategy is there's definitely going to be a couple different thoughts here where people are designing their... FI plans or their fire plans with no government programs on the horizon or the expectation they might not even be there 20 or 30 years from now. And that's the smart way to do it. If you're at the beginning of your journey, definitely don't build this in as part of your plan. But for people like in our age group, the likelihood that these plans are there in 15 or 20 years is is higher. It's just a higher likelihood. And I'm not saying that we should plan to use them as such in that strategy. But it's certainly nice to have that option that if things go really sideways and your portfolio takes a big hit and you maybe you don't need to do it for eight years, maybe you need to restructure it for five years. It's just something that is very smart to be aware of these options that you can use in planning. And again, like we said at the beginning, is replanning. Right. So it's just it's it's an education, it's an awareness thing and say, oh, okay, uh, things didn't quite work out. And now I'm 60. Let's employ that strategy for a few years and let that RSP grow. So then at 71, when we convert it, then I can start using it. Because that's one of the big points of this is that you actually let your RSP sit and don't withdraw from it so that it can grow and compound in those eight years so that you, then you can riff it and start pulling off it again. So it's just a good strategy to to understand, uh, add it to your planning toolbox. For sure. So we have this huge list of topics we want to cover, but we can't cover them all. So we're just going to start winding down now. But there is one one topic that Money Mechanic wanted to cover, and that's the variable variable percentage. Withdrawal. Yes, I struggled with that before too. I'm like, I know it's VPW, okay. but what is, anyway. The, okay, the problem with this is this is like a part two episode as well, because if we even touch the 4% rule, <laughs> there's going to be people shouting at their headphones to their podcast, right? We don't want to go down this, but the point of this is, Mark, you've written about it and you can just talk quickly about it, is that you don't need to rely on that 4% rule. You can use a variable percentage withdrawal. So highlight that for us. Give us your two-minute elevator on it. Yeah, perfect. So, correct. So, think of this like 
your spending today and your asset accumulation years is dynamic. You may not spend exactly the same on groceries uh, or other things every month. And so your spending tends to be dynamic. It changes, right? Month to month, year to year. VPW, so variable percentage withdrawal, works the same in in asset decumulation. The, the essence is instead of setting in stone this magical 4% rule, I'm going to withdraw this every year, increase to inflation for the next 30 years, and I shouldn't run out of a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera. What you'll do is you'll use the calculator, and there's a couple articles on my site. I think uh, I certainly leverage the, the fine work of super smart people on Boggleheads and, and other websites where you can get this for free. So it's a very simple Excel tool. And basically what you do is you plug in your age and you plug in you know the end date of your retirement portal, you know age 100 or what have you. And based on the assets that you have, so whatever asset value you have of the day, the portfolio of the calculator is going to adapt to your, your, it's going to give you a percentage of what you can draw down in terms of a max spend to make sure you don't run out of money. So you don't run out of your money too quickly and you don't leave a huge, you know, uh, estate to manage. So it kind of uses the concept of you you spend a little bit more, uh, variable percentage withdrawal, you spend a little bit more and take it a little bit more from your portfolio in good times. And in bad times, maybe when the market's gone down and your portfolio has sunk a little bit because maybe you're heavy in equities, what have you, it's going to say, you know, maybe you shouldn't be focusing on a 4.9% withdrawal this year at age 58 or whatever the calculator says. Maybe you need to think about 4.3 because we want your money to last. So it, it's really just taking advantage of dynamic spending in your retirement years. That's really all it's trying to do based on the value you have left, what's going to be air quotes, fairly safe for you to withdraw, assuming that this is your portfolio value. And again, it's something you can play with every year or even more frequently than that to, to see, you know, you basically don't run out of money at the end, or again, you don't have a massive estate value that you have to manage at the end, depending on your personal plan, of course, because some people do. Yeah. And someone who writes a lot about this is Michael Kitsis. He has done a ton of research and I think he may call it the guardrail strategy. There are there are different names for this kind of uh, withdrawal strategy. I've heard that. That's He, mm-hmm. he kind of uses this as, as guardrails. You, you can start with the 4% rule or the 3.5% rule, the 4.5% rule, but maybe your guardrails are 5.5 mm-hmm. and maybe at the low end it's 3.5 if you're starting at 4.5. So it's really just a guardrail kind of concept and exactly that's what the Excel tool does. And uh, there's folks on various forums in Canada that talk about it. And again, I got a couple articles on my site through a quick search that people can check it out. And I try to redirect into those forums. Um, so it's really a really cool approach. It's a free tool. It just gives you a different way of thinking about things beyond this magical 4%. Perfect. And speaking of tools, I think maybe that's a good way to end the show because this is complicated stuff. <laughs> it's it's not easy. And uh, even my financial planner, Ed Rempel, he tells me he uses software to figure this out. Because I ask him, you know, when do I take this? When will I take that? And it it's very difficult to figure it out in your head or, or even on paper. You you need the help of tools to to really optimize this to the max. So maybe I think what we'll do is just list some of the calculators that Mark's listed on his site, as well as a couple of other tools that listeners have mentioned and that we've discovered on our, on our own. We'll just list those in the show notes. Yeah, I think that's the best way we could rattle through them all, but that'll be, yeah, that'll add another half an hour into this, telling, <laughs> telling everybody how good some of these calculators that our fellow Canadians have made for us. I've got one more question before we uh, sort of let Mark wrap up with uh, his projects and his new project. Is Mark, 
you're a really smart guy. You've put a lot of thought into this. You've got a lot of experience in personal finance. You've, you seem to have a pretty solid plan in place for yourself. For listeners out there, as Chrissy said, this is complicated and overwhelming. For myself personally, I feel fairly comfortable with what I'm building up, but I definitely feel like I need to go and talk this through and maybe check that I don't have biases and blind spots. What are your thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts, meaning, you know, get help, <laughs> get help when you need it. Um, and I'm not just saying that for Money Mechanic or Chrissy, you folks are are very well versed in all this stuff. And I'd like to think I know enough to be uh, slightly dangerous in terms of my own financial health, good or bad. Uh, no, joking aside, uh, get, get, get help or seek help from a, a fee-only planner uh, where it makes sense for you. This is complicated stuff from the perspective that there's a lot to think about. And you could you could research stuff about CPP like we talked about in OAS and deferrals on blogs and forums and what have you. And you can look at my RSP to RIF strategy or you've talked to Ed Rempel about the GIS strategy and so on and so forth. But the reality is, is to put it all together. It's, it's complex stuff. It takes time to think things through. And fee-only planners have the advantage of having access to commercial software or they've built their own through software designers and they see clients' needs every day and they have intake forms and questionnaires and they ask you follow-up questions about, do you want to take OAS at 65 or do you want to defer it? Do you want to start drawing down your RSP? What are your dreams and aspirations to spend the money? They're going to get into the emotional side of the the math, if you will, and and try to figure out what makes sense for the life you want to live. And... And that's really hard to do on your own, I find. I I think it takes a lot of navel-gazing. It takes a lot of time to think (laughs) things through. It takes a lot of time to talk to your spouse or your family. And at the end of the day, we've talked about it, plans can change. So even if you've got the greatest plan now, six months from now, it can be turned upside down. The financial planner will allow you to go through that thought exercise of goals, objectives, spending needs, and they're going to do it in an unbiased way. They're not married to products. They're not married to financial securities. And it's a great way to have an excellent expert sounding board for someone that does this for a living and they have their best interests i think of you in mind certainly they they are charging fees for some of their services and i get that but at the end of the day they're looking for your best interests and i think without the bias of products or funds or stocks or etfs or gic's company they just want to be able to help you with your math and i think that's a great benefit that a lot of Canadians should start considering and um you know there are some they're few and far between, but there are a few resources out there that people can tap into, and I can make sure you get them in the show notes where a couple of bloggers keep a few directories of fee-only planners as best as they can, and it's a great starting point for uh, for a lot of Canadians to consider in this space. Yeah, I, I think it's something that's important to mention in the FIRE community because we're very fee-averse. Like We really don't like paying financial fees of any kind. Even if it's for good advice, it's really hard for some people to part with that money. But at any point in the journey, this might be the most critical time where you should really get a plan and have a planner, even if it's just a one-time engagement to look over your numbers, make sure you're on the right path. Even if it's you already know it and you know your numbers are right, just to get that um, reassurance that a pro has looked at it and you're doing the right things with your money because it could make or break your retirement if you get it wrong. I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree, Chrissy. 
Right on. Well, this has been a fantastic talk. We've got some segues for some part twos and part threes because you've been <laughs> you've been holding out on us, Mark. It's taken us two years to get you on the show, and you can't use the, your East Coast time zone thing because we talk <laughs> to people all across Canada. Christy and I stay up all night if necessary to talk to our guests. <laughs> I've heard that because I listen to your show enough, and I know you do. But no, it's 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 awesome. I know we're wrapping, but. I hope to be back sooner than two years, and it's obviously uh, great to talk to both of you and and really just provide another voice and vehicle for for Canadians to ask some really good questions and, and try to get some really good answers. Yeah, thanks a lot. So before you go, we definitely want to make sure all our listeners know where they can find you and find out more about you if they've never heard of you before, because once they do, they'll be down a rabbit hole on your blog, as, <laughs> as I did at the beginning several years ago. So yeah, just uh, give us that give us that pitch for us. Cool. And, and your new project. I want to know about the new project. I know mm-hmm. what it is, but I haven't dug into it enough yet. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll come to that in part two. So part one is my own advisor, as you uh, kindly alluded to at the top. It's my blog really about uh, my personal journey for the last at least 10 or 11 years now that I've been running it. Um, myownadvisor.ca. You can find me there. I answer reader questions every week. I have uh, giveaways. Obviously, I talk about my own journey, but I do share uh, industry commentary in terms of new ETFs to consider, low cost, of course. I also talk about dividend-paying stocks on my site. Um, there's also interviews from you know VPs and CEOs from some of Canada's biggest financial institutions where I, when I can grab some time with them. So it's a whole mix of my journey, but also uh, hopefully rich information for Canadian investors. I'm also on the Twitter machine at uh, my own advisor. Uh, so hit me up there. That's uh, the main social channel I use. And then part two, uh, the new project. So I've recently launched a, a new site with a, with a friend of mine called cashflowsandportfolios.com. And I know you've referenced it a little bit today. Really, it's it's not so much of a, of a journey uh, site. It's really more of a how-to. We're trying to make it into a little bit more of a technical how-to site for Canadians where um, if they don't want to follow a particular personal narrative, that's fine. Like they just want to know everything that they should know about RIFs or everything they should know about TFSAs or... When should I even start investing and, and the consideration? So it's going to be more of a technical guide, which we think is is helpful. It's also allowing us to provide some coaching or some cash flow projection services to Canadians as well. So through the uh, professional software, uh, we're really trying to use our expertise in and helping people understand the math behind you know, their retirement plan. So it's using all the assumptions and all the inputs that, that clients or Canadians may give us. And, you know, again, our services are, are outlined and they can contact us for that. But we're really just trying to put, I guess, the wealth of information that they have, plus, you know, going far beyond any free calculators and tools that have some biases and assumptions built in and really trying to help people understand uh, the power of where they're at and also where they're forecasted to be. So that's the cash flows and portfolio site. And we're, we're happy to offer those services, but also all the content is, is hundred percent free and we're happy to do it. Yeah. You have some great blog articles on there and they're worth reading very in depth, very detailed and uh, helpful info for people to take uh, advantage of. Okay. I've got it. <laughs> it. It took us over an hour, but all we said was retirement planning is creating a cash flow to satisfy your expenses as tax efficiently as possible for the duration of your the remainder of your life. 
Any is that what do you guys think? Anything to add to that? Excellent. So easy to say, but so, so hard easy to do, to, right? <laughs> it just it just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Yeah. How hard can this be? <laughs> Mark, it's been a pleasure, buddy. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to do it and I can't wait to come back. Yes. Thank you, Mark. It, I was so excited that we could finally get you on. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening. If you've been getting value from our content, please support us in the following ways. Leave us a review and subscribe in your favorite podcast player. Tell your friends and family about us or use our referral links at explorifycanada.ca forward slash recommendations. All of our show notes can be found at exploreficanada.ca. You can also find us on our other websites, figarage.ca or eatsleepbreathefy.com. Our show is edited and mixed by Max Desmarais at Fix Audio. That's F-I-X-A-U-D dot I-O. Episode transcripts were created in otter.ai.